0: Welcome to Allied, the podcast for everything you need to know about web and video accessibility. I'm your host, Elisa Lewis, and I sit down with an accessibility expert each month to learn about their work. Every episode has a transcript published with it, which can be viewed by accessing the episode on the 3Play Media website. If you like what you hear on Allied, please subscribe or leave a review. Allied is brought to you by 3Play Media, your video accessibility partner. Visit us at www.3playmedia.com to learn why thousands of customers trust us to make their video and media accessible. Today we're joined by Joe Baker to discuss all things accessible design systems. Joe is the senior product manager for accessibility for the design system at Atlassian and has previously worked on several digital accessibility teams, including at Amazon and Microsoft. He is passionate about building sustainable accessibility programs and design systems to ensure that all customers are considered when building products and services. Utilizing his background in front end development and UX design, he shares his guidance on his site Diggly.com to help advocate for pushing past compliance and to focus on the user experience of people with disabilities. Thank you so much, Joe, for being here and joining us on Allied. We're so excited to have you today. Yeah,
1: it's a pleasure. Really excited to be here.
0: As we get started, I love to just ask our guests, what's something important about who you are that you want to share with your audience that's maybe not on your formal bio?
1: Yeah, something just more of a personal note. Uh, I'm lucky to be husband to my incredible wife. And I've got two daughters, uh, Lily McKenzie. And my wife's name is Kristen. And uh, that's something I don't usually put out there. But that's something that I'm really proud of. Uh, Additionally, something that's not in my bio is that I'm a founding partner of a creative and marketing agency based in Richmond, Virginia called Pixel Strike Creative. So I'm still helping them out with a lot of uh, strategic initiatives uh, and sort of the overall direction of the company, but um, overall, I'm more focused on my day-to-day on accessibility.
0: Love it. Thank you for sharing that. I love the um, sort of personal piece and the a little bit of another kind of side project. So that's great. Um, I want to kind of start a little bit, you know, just talking about your career trajectory in general um, before we kind of dive in to our topic today, which is really going to focus around design systems. So before getting into your role at Atlassian, how did you get into accessibility and design? Um, when did that passion and commitment begin and where did it come from?
1: Yeah, so originally I was I wanted to be a network engineer. Uh, that was my path going to college. Um, that was my end goal overall. I sort of quickly pivoted to doing sort of, sort of freelance uh, design for different student organizations uh, and different events that were happening within the the university campus itself. Started playing around with some HTML and doing some WordPress sites. And uh, after college, I was able to sort of spin that up into working uh, in a lot of consulting agencies and uh, became a full-time UX designer, front end developer, developed my technical skills uh, and uh, started Pixel Strike Creative shortly after um, sort of getting, after a couple of years of Pixel Strike Creative full-time, we had had a client that was diagnosed with ALS and quickly, unfortunately lost the use of his uh, his limbs, um, except for some mobility in his arms. And uh, I had some previous experience working at Capital One Bank with accessibility in that, you know, it was something that sort of came out at the end of of a feature delivery Uh, But that really sort of drove it home that this is something that affects everybody at some point in their life. Um, And so I decided to go full-time into accessibility. And I actually also started that that same accessibility team that was dinging me for issues when I was a developer there. That's the team I joined. And that was my first full-time role in
0: accessibility. Cool. It's so fun when things come full circle like that. That's a a Great story. I, I also know that you are the founder of diggly.com, um, which helps to advocate for pushing, you know, beyond compliance and really focusing on user experience when it comes to accessibility. Um, at what point did you start that and how does that fit into your sort of career journey and your journey with accessibility?
1: Yeah, so diggly is uh, a consulting company a side project that I have to my day-to-day, as well as a mentorship uh, facilitator. So I currently mentor three or four folks in the accessibility space at big tech and, and sort of smaller companies as well. They're either early in their journey or they're doing a career shift, and I like to really help those folks out. Originally, I would started Digly as a, a vehicle to uh, share the knowledge, essentially. When I started in accessibility, it was really hard to find uh, anything outside of specific role uh, checklists, like uh, for instance, for design, you got to check for color contrast. And that, that's all well and good, but I wanted more. I wanted, okay, well, how do you actually build a program? How do you scale it? What are the things to really be uh, thinking about as you build that program? And then how do you actually effectively communicate how accessibility is important? Um, that's come a long way since I started in accessibility now in terms of articles on Medium and and other things that you find across the web. But um, my Diggly focuses a lot on the tactical stuff, the pragmatic approach of you have this problem with accessibility, what are some things that you can do to tackle it that not only are scalable but practical um, depending on the size of your, your company and your organization.
0: So I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the idea of a checklist um, and kind of that you, you know, started Diggly to move away from that um, or beyond that. Um, it's something that's interesting to me because we've been talking about it a lot recently at 3Play. You know, I'm on the marketing and brand side. So content is also in my wheelhouse and people love checklists. Um, But when it comes to accessibility, I think checklists often give the sense that accessibility is something that can be done or completed um, when really it's something that's sort of constantly evolving and there's always room for improvement. So that's kind of interesting. Um, And just on a sort of Personal note, love that you brought that up. So thank you for for sharing that. I'm curious, what about pursuing a career in accessibility has surprised you the most, and what's changed since you started? Like I said, you know, accessibility is something that's always kind of um, changing, and and um, you know, we kind of need to keep up with new trends and and new technology. Um, so yeah, what surprised you the most, and and what's changed?
1: Uh, So the the thing that surprised me the most when I started my career and still does to this day is how little I know and how much I have to learn about accessibility. Um, As as I would mentioned previously, my first sort of foray into accessibility was mostly from a development standpoint. It's, hey, we have this problem, must be fixed before it goes live to a customer. Um, And as I dug deeper into it, you truly understand how widespread accessibility actually is in, in a company. Uh, one of the, the best things, and some, some, something I'd tell sort of mentees and other people who are possibly interested in getting into accessibility full-time, is that if you wanna learn anything, or if you wanna be eclectic, wear m- multiple hats, go into accessibility, because on any given day, I'm doing design, development, program management, uh, KR writing, front-end services, back-end services, you're doing a bit of everything. You're touching a little bit of, of every part of a company or product. And uh, that really excites me because I have probably a million hobbies at this point. I never want to stop learning. And i that's that's something that I truly value about accessibility. And I'm I'm pretty sure for the rest of my career, it will never change.
0: I love that. I think that's such a great way to look at it. Um, I know that you kind of started your answer there saying that, you know, you don't know a lot, but I, I think Mm. it's really what you touched on at the end is that there's just always more to learn. Um, I think the other thing that I personally love about working in accessibility is to your point, I think people are eager to learn, but people are also really eager to share their knowledge. um, and that's a really cool place to be. I do want to talk a little bit, I I feel like we could have a whole episode on kind of some of your side gigs in accessibility, Mm -hmm. but um, I do want to talk a little bit about your role at Atlassian. Um, Can you share kind of what a day or maybe a week in the life looks like um, and what your job at Atlassian entails?
1: Sure. Yeah. So uh, Atlassian in general has this concept of every team is managed by a triad or a squad. So uh, I'm a product manager uh, for accessibility for the Atlassian design system. I work very closely with an engineering manager and a design manager, both of which are also assigned to the accessibility team. And then those folks help manage sort of the timelines, the roadmap, and then the engineers and designers that sit with on that team. Uh, So a typical part of my day is checking in with those folks, checking in with the work, checking in with our products, Jira and Confluence, probably the most well-known Uh, on their accessibility issues, adoption of the design system, and broadly speaking, how do we integrate our customer feedback? Uh, Customers for us are not just our products, but they're also our end users, uh, a concept that we call makers, which are uh, our designers and developers. How do we take all of that feedback, collate it, and then making sure that we're prioritizing the right amount of work for the right people for the right reasons?
0: And I'm curious, particularly, you know, working with so many different people on so many different teams, um, how has accessibility changed or developed in recent years? Um, and is there anything that's kind of stood out to you, um, you know, about from the development side, like really, or design side, getting accessibility in kind of from the beginning? Has that been a challenge? Has there been pushback? Has it been easy to gain buy-in? Um, and again, has that how has that changed over the years? Yeah.
1: So I'm I'm very fortunate at Atlassian that uh, the typical struggle for accessibility in any company is getting folks to care about it, right? Having it added to the roadmaps, having people even just generally aware of what it would take in order for something to be accessible. Atlassian is very passionate about the customer and, and the end user experience. And so from day one, I had people already fighting for accessibility, who are not on any accessibility role or team or anything like that? Um, the The hard part gets into everybody cares about it, but then it's uh, you have the empathy aspect locked down, but then it's the impact. Okay, great, we care about it. How do we actually do it? And that's that's usually at a company where problems uh, occur. So. Uh, how it's changed at Atlassian in the past couple of years is that we now have dedicated roles specific to accessibility that are focused on training, QA testing, working with our, our large clients, and these, this accessibility team within the design system is brand new as well as of last year. So we have a full, the, the concentration on accessibility is sort of the big sweeping change. Uh, as we sort of adapt to uh, the different products and the different legal landscapes that that we're going to be encountering here in the next couple of years.
0: It's really great to have um, this background. I I do want to pivot the conversation over to design systems. Um, I think it's it's good to start broadly. Our audience comes from various areas of accessibility. So can you kind of share for us what is a design system and why is it important? Um, and then also what does a design system entail?
1: Sure, yeah. So a common misconception about a design system is that it's a component library, essentially reusable design and code that developers and designers can just pick up, use, and then that that's it. A, a fully mature design system has far more components to it, such as uh, content, patterns, resources, brand activities and resources, and, and something that we call tokens, which is a popular thing in uh, mature design systems, which is essentially assigning a name to a color. Um, so, and so if you scale out colors correctly, you only have to change it in one place and it changes everywhere. Uh, it's important, uh, a design system is really important because it allows you to scale uh, design brands effectively. And it allows the makers, the designers and developers that that use that design system to focus on the real problems, the real customer experience and reduces their time spent on solving the same issues repeatedly. Uh, Specific to accessibility, the great thing about design systems is you solve compliance or a user experience issue once, it is solved for the entire company. You don't have to iterate it on again. You don't have to spend time, money or other resources to solve it and it allows you to really focus not just on the user experience, but also the research and the patterns, the interactions and other things that that heavily go into what would typically be problems at a company for uh, accessibility just to be remediated once.
0: Um- Curious, who's typically responsible or involved in creating the design system, um, and is is there anyone that's specifically focused on accessibility?
1: Yeah, I, so if you're fortunate like me um, to have a team purely focused on accessibility and design system, it would be that team. the The broad answer is everybody. Everybody's responsible for it. Um, one of the things that that are great. Uh, design system will really tap into is that if you don't have a dedicated accessibility team, because that is fairly rare, uh, you're able to sort of put place accessibility throughout the, the design system in different ways. Uh, you can do that through definition of done files, where essentially it's a checklist of these are things that must be completed at each step of a, of a process, either a component or, or a pattern delivery but also in resources. And the big thing is content. Uh, As design systems are handing off all of the work that they have done, it's really important that they document how to use it accessibly. If there are problems that occur because of the implementation down the road of the use of, of a design system, it's really important that folks have that fallback to understand why that's a problem and what the customer impact is.
0: Yeah, so that leads me um, to a question. I had seen a statistic um, from DQ that about 67% of accessibility issues start in design, um, but many people assume that accessibility is the job of developers. Um, Do you have any idea where this assumption comes from, and how can design systems help address this?
1: So traditionally, that's in a product lifecycle. The engineering part of the life cycle is where the issues are identified because of automated testing, and that's the actual experience. That's the actual usable area. So that's, that's sort of where that myth comes from. It's where the problems are found, typically, versus where they originate. So the reality is that um, in a lot of product teams, the flow is to go from design immediately to development, and a developer will just... Blindly follow the the design patterns or design that has been given to them without sort of understanding um, what the customer impact, particularly to people with disabilities, would be. Um, and that's due to a number of factors. Uh, primarily, it's time. They don't have time to sort of look into this thing. There's no time to question. A timeline's been set. A roadmap's been delivered, and you have to meet that. So um, shifting accessibility left into a a design and iterated process helps folks really understand a lot of those core issues. And uh, there's a statistic as well by uh, Anna Cook who did an article on Deq. It's 36 times more expensive to fix an issue in production than it is in design. So So let's take, for example, you develop a button. It has a color contrast issue. It's identified on your website you have to go back all the way through that whole process again. And in, and you have to understand, too, that you, if you're changing something in one place and you're not changing it in other places, that leads to terrible user experience as well as your brand perception goes down. So it affects multiple things where the designer is sort of the key holder to unlock that door to make sure that they really understand uh, that everything starts from them, uh, but it ends up As a problem in a different area it's it's on them to sort of solve that
0: yeah that's a fantastic statistic um you know i i think we always talk about baking accessibility in from the beginning um, but that really hits home on you know not just why it's important but from a financial perspective what the what the benefit is and um you know what you can avoid by doing so um I'm curious if you can give an example of what a design system might look like when it includes accessibility versus what one looks like when it doesn't.
1: Yeah, for me, there's a major flag to look at too, and that's a documentation on that, that site. Um, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but if your site has com- a component library and there isn't an accessibility section provided to your developers, uh, specifically, but also your designers on the accessibility considerations, accessibility problems, relevance, uh, WCAG or Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, success criteria, sort of the uh, teaching uh, a person how to fish kind of thing. You're not scaling out that knowledge. You've made the decisions, but communicating that out, how to effectively use those components and the customer impact, which I can't say enough. The customer impact has to always be identified uh another f- common flag that i see is um in a design systems we mentioned a lot of design systems who are sort of newer are just a component library right so a mature design system like google material or atlassian dot, uh, design has a, a section called foundations and foundations is a core component to any design system it focuses on the patterns the main patterns that a design system we use for instance colors spacing grid just to name a couple the the emphasis on creating those documenting those and solving those problems that then scale out through not only design system but other products is is key to making sure that accessibility is at the very forefront at the very start anything to do with a design system
0: Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. How are different kinds of disabilities considered when designing a system to be accessible?
1: Yeah, generally all forms of disabilities are considered for us, certainly, and certainly for the much more mature design systems. So the the main cohorts being vision, hearing, mobility, and cognitive, um, and then there's a broad range in between each four of those, those buckets. Um, Each of those four groups have to be evaluated in different ways, um, particularly to make sure that you're covering the needs um, of of those cohorts. But a key emphasis should be, I think, not to necessarily focus on the cohorts and sort of that checklist of of things, but how do users actually interact with your components, with your end user experience? Uh, For for example, if, if folks have a mobility impairment, and they're using assistive technology, that a lot of that times for them to navigate requires the use of a keyboard or something that relies on keyboard navigation. So it's, it's important to not say, hey, we're gonna check off all mobility impairments, we're good, but it's how's the keyboard interaction? Same thing for, for vision impaired users. It's not, hey, a screen reader works, or it announces, it does announce something or status to a user, but what does it announce? What's the actual user experience? And really making sure too that uh, manual testing, people with lived experience, I cannot express this enough either, should absolutely be integrated into your process. Uh, We have automated testing throughout the design system as, as most folks do, but we also have folks with lived experience who will review every component before it goes out. And we get tons of feedback, hey, this is great, but this is actually the user experience I'm expecting. And we'll run that through several times. And that is core to sort of the, the things that we do to make sure that it is accessible.
0: Absolutely, yeah, that's a huge part of it is making sure that you know, you're involving those people who have that lived experience and who rely on certain technologies to actually be part of the testing and, and do the testing. Um, and of course, get paid for that testing that they're doing. I'm curious, so, you, know, you talked a little bit about user interaction and user experience, and I, some, I, think, um, I think there's something interesting sort of about the obvious um, accessible design or design in general versus kind of subtle design. Um, I think when individuals think about design, they assume that design means making things look good or pretty, um, and that's kind of the obvious part of the design um, or obvious part of design. But design is also navigation, it's the user interaction, the user experience, the way a problem is solved. Um, And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit uh, about this and kind of what the more subtle space um, looks like just broadly, and then also from an accessibility standpoint.
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, I can sort of do both from a broad and accessibility standpoint. It's about the usability of it. So uh, it's getting back to those foundations of ensuring that the who your customers are, you're building for the right people, for the right reasons, um, are checked off sort of at the beginning. So, um, as, as I mentioned, Atlassian Design System has a series of foundations already baked in. The colors, again, sort of gets into the visual aspects, the, the obviousness. But you've got to get into interaction patterns and motion design. And then, even then, you have to understand uh, how uh, spacing works how far apart things should be spread apart, how close buttons should be in relation to their forms. There's a lot of little little details that you can get into, particularly on a design front, that craft the overall experience. And it's really key to ensure that you're not only looking at it from a, a basic point of, we've solved accessibility or user experience for one component, but the overall page level making sure that that makes sense, and then testing it against another page. Does it make sense in relation to that? Do you have a common flow? There's a lot of sort of psychology into the subtle part, I think, is where the sort of differentiation is on how a user experiences it and something that every design system should take a close look at.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great point and kind of um, a nice segue into understanding how um, the design system really works sort of across different types of design. Um, can you talk a little bit about how decisions are made at scale, how making things accessible at scale works, um, across an organization, particularly, you know, if there's a larger organization, um, how do you sort of gain that buy-in to the design system?
1: Yeah. I mean, this, this alone could be a podcast into its own, um, and sort of the whole one of the main drivers of why I started Digly. Um, th- the common misconception, I think, that a lot of folks have around a design system is that it's a it's a platform. You know, it's something that people are used. I would heavily suggest if folks are either starting a design system or they have one in place to to mentally shift and turn it into a product mindset. So find your partners that are interested in using this system whether those be product managers, uh, design leaders, engineering leaders, find out what their problems are, do your customer research, identify what those problems are and attack those problems. Give them a solution to make their lives easier. Uh, It's sort of uh, easier to start more with uh, product folks as they're the ones driving timelines and milestones. Same thing with sort of heads of departments. Um, But it's really uh, integral that you get that buy-in from all the roles. Uh, if you're starting out a design system or you, your design system is there, but it's not well adopted, start small, get one partner, go from there, figure out uh, what their problems are, test it out, test everything you've got going. Does it work for them at scale? Then go on to the next partner. And The more and the more you get, it turns uh, a small pebble turns into an avalanche really key too is having your data. I mean, you need to know the amount of design and engineering time a design system solves for. You need to know what issues are currently in product backlogs that these would solve for. You, they don't have to spend the times and manpower of the resources to fix those if they just adopt something you've already solved for. Uh, and just creating that standardized approach as well helps a lot of engineers and design uh, designers on product teams evaluate, hey, this is something that has already been solved. Why don't we go after this particular problem that only we can solve? Let's be creative about that. And sort of the last point, I think that uh, broadly speaking, you have to really understand too um, the customer's needs, as I mentioned before, but you have to make resources for those makers. You have to make sure that your documentation is 100% ready to go. It's very clear, concise. Folks without a background or have just onboarded to that company can immediately get to a getting started page or go through your site's documentation and pick it up and start going. You need to provide um, not just the content, Figma libraries, component libraries, basic stuff um, where people can grab and go and you know don't make it hard on them make it e- make it hard on the design system to create and then make it easier down the road
0: i particularly love the point that you made about um you know really kind of showing the stats and the numbers about the time and kind of like problems that having the design system um, can solve i think for a lot of people particularly some of the teams that you mentioned you know the product team engineers um i think everyone across an organization loves to to kind of see what the the results are. Um, So I think that's a really great sort of tangible um, suggestion there. So thank you for that. I I know we touched on it a a little bit um, earlier in the conversation, but I I wanna jump back um, for a moment and just talk a little bit more about testing. Um, You know, we certainly talked about how important it is to have individuals who are, um, you know, users um, of certain technology and who have lived experience. Um, But I'm curious if you could also touch on um, automation in the testing process and kind of where that may fall short. Um, Are there any examples of commonly missed accessibility issues that are hard for automated testing to catch, but um, can maybe more easily be tested manually?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a bunch. I'll give a quick example. Um, So, there's four main types of automated testing as it relates to accessibility. You have linting, which is essentially as a developer is coding something, it throws an issue, it throws an error, and they can fix it in real time. Scanning, there's a user experience that gets scans by a set of accessibility rules, and a set of uh, issues are popped out. Uh, The other two are integration and unit testing, Uh, those I'll get to here in, in a second. Um, Those are the two sort of pain points right there, unit and integration. And that unit testing primarily focuses on we're going to test a batch of code and make sure that that's accessible. The primary problem with unit testing is that a lot of unit testing requires it to have a holistic understanding of everything that's going to the code. So typically with JavaScript frameworks, you'll be working on a tiny piece in the code and you reference sort of the parent elements that get rendered to a user experience. If that code doesn't know that those parent elements exist and that unit test doesn't know that either, it's gonna throw issues where there actually are no issues. It's actually fine. Regression testing, sorry, integration testing as well um, is really key. There's not a lot of maturity overall for accessibility outside of design systems or, or at other companies. Uh, in this space, mostly because it's tricky to add, it it adds a lot of complexity. You have to make a lot of program decisions about do you block something from being deployed? Uh, Are folks comfortable with that? To what severity? There's a lot of minutia around that. So automated testing overall catches 40, if I'm being generous, 50% of all accessibility issues. And when I say that, it's not WCAG criteria that I'm mentioning, it's literally user experience issues is is what I'm referring to. Um, A good example of where manual testing is absolutely critical, something I referenced before. So automated testing, if you are doing a status message to a screen reader user, automated testing can really only tell that that status, status message exists. But that status message could Uh, sort of not make sense to the end user. It could actually confuse them wildly, or that status message is something that is repeated from an earlier instance, causing even more confusion. So it's really critical that you have manual testing for the uh, issues that rely on context of the page, context of the content. uh, um, And in addition to that, there's no real automated testing for cognitive disability. Um, right now. And that's, you know, I'm hoping, you know, with this recent surge in AI that everybody's had 20 blogs a day about, that um, that sort of can be solved, the, both of the context as well as some of the cognitive disability issues. But the reality is that there's no tests um, that sort of automatically sort of fix those or let alone detect those.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful to hear those examples, um, and you know, you're right, we're at a, a very interesting time where I think there's a lot of opportunity um, to further and enhance accessibility, um, but I guess only time will kind of tell how, how that pans out. So as we wrap up, I would love to just get some of your advice um, to share with our audience what advice would you give to companies or maybe more so to individuals at companies who really want to bake accessibility into their design systems? Um, Maybe they don't know where to start or maybe there's a pre-established design system in place. What can you share with them?
1: I think it's really important that folks working in accessibility and design systems understands what their actual current status is. One of the first things that we've done here at Atlassian is gone through the components and we're doing a full audit, both manual and automated to find any and all issues with our components. Um, that it's a full audit uh, of those components, a full audit of your resources, really understanding, again, talking to your customers, to people using the design system, how do they feel about accessibility? Do they know anything about it? Is it a problem? and and truly understanding exactly where accessibility should sit within a company uh, is also key. I've been at a number of different companies. I've been at Amazon, Microsoft Capital One, currently here at Atlassian. Every single one of those accessibility teams has sat in a different org, different place, wildly different from the other. Um, You have sort of the legal and compliance Sections, that's uh, when I was at Capital One, that's where that accessibility team sat. Amazon, it sat on a product team. Uh, Microsoft, specifically Xbox, focused more um, on just general program management. And then of course, my current role is in a very specific centralized focus on a design system. So it's it's sort of understanding in your company, where are things tested? where should accessibility sort of sit in that company uh, from a logistical standpoint in order to make sure that it's effective, scalable. And I think if you're just starting out in accessibility and really wanna get folks into accessibility, there's sort of two primary tools uh, that I would highly suggest. It's sort of what I call the carrot and stick model. So the stick is learn the legal ramifications of folks who do not do accessibility. Uh, I'm wearing my Judy Heumann shirt who, who famously really helps get the Rehabilitation Act uh, passed that had section 508 in it. That was one of the first of many laws here in the United States that a lot of folks have to follow in order to be accessible and to make sure that you don't lose any revenue, let alone uh, for some of these compliance issues. But we also have the American with Disabilities Act. Um, that is a very key thing. That's where a lot of uh, those regulations and sort of where the web content accessibility Guideline standard originally sort of stems from, or at least the creation of it. And just be aware that um, of the, the cases, the legal uh, cases that have happened in the past, the previous litigation that happens if you don't do accessibility, it, it's if you're working in a large company, you are absolutely at risk for being sued if you are not resolving those issues. If it's not baked in, you don't have a public roadmap for accessibility. Smaller companies, you know, less noticeable, but you know, for the end user experience, you should always worry about that. The this, the carrot part of it that I really enjoy doing, and I've used this at mul- multiple companies is uh, if you're meeting sort of some object objections to adding accessibility to a product from a product manager, or product leader, uh, or design and engineering, something that I really love doing is getting that team into a room, bringing in someone with lived experience, particularly um, uh, one that is uh, those issues are mostly focused on, I think a screen reader one is probably a great one. Bring in somebody who uses a screen reader every day, have them go through the experience so that everybody can hear and see it. And 10 out of 10 times, uh, the product folks in that room, the makers uh, genuinely are shocked about the experience, how bad it can be and how unusable it is. And I think if you focus on the empathy part, uh, building that empathy, why it matters, you got to also drive that impact part, and making sure that folks know how to fix it, where to fix it, and when to fix it.
0: I'd actually love to sort of leave off um, with that empathy piece. I I know you had a recent article on um, on your site on Diggly about measuring empathy and accessibility. Um, I'm sure you know. Again, that could be a whole nother episode. But could you give us kind of the high level um, takeaways and I would encourage everyone to then go check out and read the article.
1: Yeah so um, one of the this is one of the the main things that I was uh, particularly trying to find information on when I started my career uh, in accessibility was it's it's very easy to measure okay how many issues that we fixed um, how to get quantitative data and qualitative data from those, um, but it's it's not easy to sort of, and generally most companies don't measure, okay, how do we feel about this particular thing. And so, um, in that article, I mentioned sort of a few techniques that that you can go to. Um, employing an internal survey to folks. How do you feel about accessibility? What's your knowledge on accessibility? Uh, and sort of what trainings do you have you ever attended, conferences, that kind of thing sort of understanding where they're at from mental model. Um, taking, taking those and sort of helping uh, create sort of internal training processes and programs as well as key. And as you create those uh, that training, you can use those metrics from that training. How many people attended? Are you getting requests, not just in individually, different uh, crafts, different organizations, different products? who's concerned about accessibility, how many people are coming, the different topics. And sort of uh, the last sort of major area, I think is customer sentiment, which is sort of, I think probably the the most important and the ultimate one is you need to understand your end users, uh, how they feel about your product as it relates to them. And there's a number of different ways that you can do that, cut user interviews and surveys, Um, You can use social media to understand, use uh, specific keywords in your customer reviews. If you have uh, previously identified customers with disabilities that you could uh, interview, um, and then a lot of folks end up having sort of a review or customer support database um, that you can research. Um, As you mentioned this earlier, if you are interviewing people for their opinions, no matter what, pay them. You should gift bags and little tchotchkes are not enough. This is their time. Pay them please for their time. You're asking for their opinion, pay them for that opinion. Um, And there's a number of organizations too. I list out a few that you can go to. Every country has its own sort of specialized accessibility research company. I, when I was at Amazon, I was fortunate to work with one specifically just for Germany Um, that was fantastic. And, uh, but you can reach out to different Lighthouse um, institutions around that we have. There's the American Foundation for the Blind, National Federation for the Blinds. Uh, there's lots of resources you can reach out to as well. If you don't have those folks um, previously identified, or you just really don't know how to do that user interview. I mean, you genuinely, you wanna do the right thing, but you don't know what's the right terminology, what are some accessibility problems, um, conducting these surveys, the best way to approach those. those organizations are great to reach out to.
0: Absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing that. And like I said, I encourage um, listeners to take a look at the whole article. Um, but I think it's a really interesting topic to to kind of close us out today. Um, talking about the empathy piece of accessibility. So thanks again for sharing. and thank you, Joe, so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Yeah, great. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Allied. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest on accessibility, visit www.3playmedia.com backslash alliedpodcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.